0: Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, September 13th, we are studying Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. Moses gives Israel various instructions on matters dealing with entering the assembly of the Lord, uncleanness in the camp, charging interest, and more. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you again. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. What should we know as we prepare to look at Deuteronomy 23?
1: Well, as as you know from uh, anybody who's been listening to this uh, to this series so far, as you've been going through the book, uh, Deuteronomy is um, at the end of the uh, at the end of the Torah, shortly before uh, Moses' um, death, uh, and he is recounting. You know, he first starts out the book with recounting kind of the historical events that are leading up to their uh, entrance into the promised land. And then he restates a lot of the uh, covenant, um, goes through the moral law, the ceremonial law and the civil law. And this is part of that section on the, the civil law here uh, that deals with how the people are to um, uh, relate to one another as part of the nation of Israel.
0: Mm. Uh, We've seen throughout these several chapters here in the the 20s, I suppose, of Deuteronomy that there's quite a bit of variety. Is there any theme that you see running through chapter 23 in terms of the way these laws might relate to each other?
1: Well, I do think there's kind of an overall concern with purity among the assembly, Mm. uh, you know, with and and there's there's a couple different contexts here, too, because the first section that we're going to talk about is just. Um, purity within the assembly in general, and then uh, it gets into purity among the the camp as the as the uh, the men go off to war, and how to keep their camp clean and so forth. And um, so there is kind of that that overall, just how do we how do we live lives that reflect um, uh, the holiness of God uh, and the purity that He, ex- he expects from us. And also, there is kind of this overarching thing, especially with the uh, prohibitions of those who are either welcome in the Assembly or not welcome in the Assembly, that does have to deal with idolatry. Hmm. Um, Because as we'll see, some of the people that are excluded from the Assembly, uh, the exclusion doesn't really ultimately have to do with, nationality as much as it has to do with the idolatry that exists among those people. Mm.
0: All right, that, I, I, I like that. And that I, the way that those tie together, then, is you've got some matters that deal with the first table of the law with idolatry, and also second table of the law, how you treat your neighbor. And of course, those two things go together. So Deuteronomy 23 is our text this morning. Moses begins, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pithor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or, or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If a man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. And as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 to 25. So, Pastor Vanderkoek, you mentioned one of the things tying this chapter together, especially the first part, is purity in the assembly. And that phrase, the assembly of the Lord, gets repeated several times in those first few verses. What are we talking about there? What is the assembly of the Lord?
1: Yeah, there's uh, essentially here we're talking about the the church, if you will, uh, you know, who is allowed to be part of the church. Uh, you know, Israel is the old uh, that's the Old Testament Christians that we have uh, here with Israel. And uh, so here we're, we're talking about the, the equivalency of those who are allowed into the church, allowed to be part of uh, God's assembly there. Yeah, I mean, there's some. Um, yeah, there's there's some perhaps discussion that could be had about whether we're talking about just the uh, these people being excluded from leadership in the assembly, but the language here doesn't seem to lend itself to that. It seems to be talking about just in general those who are allowed to be part of God's people or not.
0: All right, so with that in mind, there's a variety of people that are listed that are not allowed to be a part of the assembly. Starting in verse 1, someone whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off, that person is not to enter the assembly of the Lord. Why Why this prohibition?
1: Yeah, it's it seems like kind of strange and, and I think probably graphic on some level to us mm-hmm. to talk about that uh, being something that would exclude somebody from the assembly. And I think, first of all, it's important to note that this is not uh, having to do with somebody who had like a terrible accident and this happened to them. Um, this is uh, this is dealing with something that was done intentionally. And of course, you might ask, why would somebody do that intentionally? Uh, and there's a couple. You know, we run into eunuchs, for example, in the in the New Testament. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch uh, is an example of one actually appearing there. Uh, but we have other examples as well from the scriptures where we have these. Uh, these men who have either been uh, castrated or in some way their uh, their sex organs have been uh, destroyed, making it impossible for them to father children. Hmm. And really, I think it's important to understand this in light of uh, a couple of uh, passages. First of all, the fact that God does give the command to man in the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and in order to be fruitful and multiply, you have to actually be able to be fruitful and multiply, of course, Uh, and this is taking that ability away, but it's not just a matter of, you know, this terrible accident happened, this is somebody deliberately making that impossible, Uh, and so it is kind of a rejection of, well, it's not kind of a rejection, it is a rejection of God's command here of trying to avoid this uh, bearing of children by this individual. Um, and then, you know, also Genesis 3.15 plays a role here, too, that God promises that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, in the end, of course, uh, Christ is going to be born uh, miraculously by the Virgin Mary without um, the aid of a man in that case. But you have to first get to the Virgin Mary, who, is a, who obviously was born of a mother, human mother and a human father, And in order to get to that point, you have to have reproduction among mankind. And so uh, throughout the history of Israel, at least those who were faithful and who trusted God's promise, they would look at every male child that was born and see in that the potential that this could be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so anytime you're going to take away this act of of reproduction— uh, it is akin to rejecting God's promise here, in addition to rejecting his command to be fruitful and multiply. Hmm. So, I mean, in this
0: case then, and the, the way you're tying this, particularly to the promise of the, the seed in Genesis 3, then it it is less about the the physical reality but it's and it's more about the religious reality there's a difference in religion here i mean i want to be careful not go too far but that i think is is really what's going on is that the what has been done physically and as you said on purpose not a not something that happened as an accident or certainly not a, a birth defect a deformity that was from birth but rather something that was done intentionally to the male organs such that the the promise that is tied to procreation now is gone. There's a there's a rejection of the religion of the Old Testament that's happening here that seems to be behind this more than anything else.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this and and that's why you know as I mentioned in the outset, really a lot of this is about idolatry. Uh, it, it's trust in something else. And as far as you know, kind of pushing this toward an application for today, you know, if we could a little bit. Um, a lot of our uh, you know it, it's actually common now for people to um, uh, to get married and do whatever they can to avoid having children. Mm. Uh, and that really is a a rejection of what God has called male and female to be in marriage uh, is to deliberately um, prevent something like that from happening. Now, of course there's there's obviously situations where, uh, women may be barren or men may be sterile, but again, those are not intentional. This is a very intentional, you know, as you said, a rejection of what God is promising uh, and what God has commanded here.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of those cases where we, we do well to remember that we are dealing with Old Testament, primarily civil law in this case, which has been fulfilled in Christ and does not apply to the church in the same way that it applied to Old Testament Israel. But in in cases like this, where we are talking about the very creation that that God has made, that he made them male and female, as you said earlier, that, that there is an overarching reality that does still apply, that the purposes for which God created us, male and female, still do apply to us very much. And to rejoice in the gift that God has given in making us male and female, and in giving husbands and wives into marriage for the the purposes that He gave it, one of which is procreation. These things do still apply. And so, while you know the the idea of you know what is spoken here about who can belong to the assembly of the Lord or belong to the church, I mean, you mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch, right? We we know that that Ethiopian eunuch was received as a Christian. And so there are different realities in play in terms of exact applications, but there are still those foundational realities of how God has created this world that do still apply, perhaps in a slightly different way, but it's still very much in play for us.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. That, and, and it's it's very true, of course, that as we look at the civil law in general, we see that as something that uh, is not uh, applicable you know, for a couple of reasons. First, because we see the law fulfilled in Christ, but also because the nation of Israel doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Uh, and so we don't have that, that, that law uh, still hanging over us in the same way. But yeah, there's certainly something that can be learned here, and I think that's important. And, you know, on top of that, we also have the clear fact from looking at, uh, you know, Isaiah 56, for example, indicates that uh, those who were once excluded from the assembly will be included among God's people in the Messianic era, and we see a fulfillment of that. You know, we've already mentioned it a couple times, Acts chapter 8, with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, who is obviously welcomed into the Church uh, through baptism and teaching. Hmm,
0: Right, and what's striking about that account in Acts chapter 8 is that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from... At least Isaiah 53, we know, because of what is recorded there by St. Luke. But just a a little bit later in that context, in the prophet Isaiah, there's a passage there where Isaiah talks about a day coming when eunuchs will be received into the kingdom.
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that that, that there will be a time when these folks are welcomed in. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So again, all right, so there's there's the first one. Verse 1 talks with who can enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse two also deals with someone who can cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. It says no one born of a forbidden union. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, you can get some of the definition of this. you know chapter 22 really covers a lot of it, uh, some of the various forbidden sexual relationships. you know God does not allow his people to engage in incest, prostitution, uh, and even you know he does forbid marrying certain foreigners as well. Um, And, you know, especially with all of those things, again, really do deal with uh, some form of idolatry, Mm. especially when we look at uh, the deviant sexual practices that exist among the Canaanites, whenever the nation of Israel is coming into the promised land, Uh, the Lord does not want them to adopt those, because those are tightly wound up with their religious practice, besides the fact that they are, um, you know, abominations, but on top of that, they're also bound up with, you know, we have cult prostitution and um, child sacrifice and things like that that are all kind of roped into this whole thing. But uh, in addition to that, there is this consequence that we can see, especially with the marrying of uh, foreigners. And really, this is part of what ends up tearing the nation of Israel into two uh, as time goes forward, because you have King Solomon, who's got hundreds of wives of all different nationalities, and uh, he ends up kind of acquiescing to whatever religion they came with uh, and allowing, you know, various um, altars to false gods and places of worship to false gods to be erected in the kingdom. And that ultimately ends up uh, resulting in the Lord dividing his kingdom.
0: Hmm. So, the, the forbidden union is likely, again, a matter less of, say, something about race or what nation you come from, but it's much more about a religious issue, again, it sounds like.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. And uh, that's, yeah, and, that, and, and, you know, again, uh, as, you know, we, I, I guess we should always add the disclaimer that, yes, this, you know, these laws are fulfilled in Christ or, you know, it's no longer uh, applicable because of the civil law. But there is something to be learned here. Uh, for the for the modern day Christian as well or at least a word of caution that um, you know for our young people when they are seeking a mate hmm. uh, the religious background of that person matters yeah. um you know if it, it is difficult uh, especially when it comes to the raising of children if not impossible uh, to raise them as faithful Christians if not even both the people that are getting married hmm. are faithful Christians. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it really um, uh, creates a difficulty there. Uh, so that's something that we should be mindful of even today.
0: Now with this one in verse two, it all, Moses also adds that even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly. What What's being spoken there
1: with the tenth generation? Well, the tenth generation is it's kind of implying that there's a completeness to it and that this prohibition carries on forever. Um, And I I think you could probably amend the forever to talk uh, to mean as long as the nation of Israel is in existence, Mm. uh, this is to not be uh, these things are not to happen Mm. within the assembly. Uh, It's a permanent prohibition, in other words.
0: So we have a similar prohibition in the next section, starting in verse three, you see there again, even to the 10th generation, and it even specifies none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, supporting that, that very interpretation here, we're dealing with Ammonites or Moabites. Moses does give a little bit of, of history here as to why this is the case. Take us into to what Moses says here about Ammonites and Moabites, not joining the assembly of Israel
1: yeah in particular he uh, he goes into the the Moabites, and you know you can read of this in uh, uh, numbers chapter twenty two where you end up with um, uh, the Israelites are traveling through, and of course, you know whenever they're traveling from Egypt and finally ultimately to the promised land, the lands they're traveling through are not unoccupied. It's not like they're just travel, yeah, it's referred to as as wilderness, but there are various nations that uh, have control over those lands. And so in order to secure uh, safe passage, they basically, they kind of have to ask permission. Hey, can we pass through your land? Uh, and the fact is the Ammonites and the Moabites were not welcoming there. And in particular, the the Moabites, uh, you end up with uh, King Balak in Numbers chapter 22 hiring Balaam, uh, his prophet, to come and curse the Israelites, and this is where we get the, 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 the rather famous uh, miraculous thing where Balaam's donkey uh, talks to him, and uh, whenever uh, Balaam is beating on his donkey to try and get it to go, and the donkey doesn't want him to go, and, and finally the Lord speaks to uh, Balaam through his donkey uh, and forbids him, from, uh, forbids him and prevents him from cursing the Israelites and rather tells him to bless him instead. But the bottom line is that the uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites were not welcoming at all to the Israelites, and instead um, uh, engaged in uh, in battle with them, uh, and would not allow safe passage for them, uh, at least without force, uh, to get to the Promised Land. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the reason why the Lord says, "Hey, these people are are not uh, allowed to do that, um, uh, to to be al- are not allowed to be in the assembly," mm-hmm. uh, and so they're excluded, and it's a fulfillment of God's word to Abraham in Genesis 12, where um, uh, where he indicates that those uh, those people would indeed not be allowed uh, among his people later on. Uh, it's also you know interesting to note that these are distant, uh, at this point very distant relatives of the uh, the Israelites. The Moabites and the Ammonites are the descendant of lots, uh, descendants of Lot and his daughters incest, hmm. um, which you know, kind of ties us back into verse two, where you had this prohibition of those who were born of um, uh, born of forbidden unions, and that union between Lot and his daughters would be considered obviously a forbidden union. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's one of those accounts that usually doesn't make it into Sunday school, what happens with Lot and his daughters there in Genesis <laughs> right. 19. After, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can keep reading in Genesis 19, and you'll find out where the Ammonites and Moabites come from. You mentioned what is spoken here by Moses about the account with Balaam and how he was hired to curse, and, and he did not. He ended up blessing. And so there's there's a religious aspect there. Are there other elements? I mean, the Ammonites and Moabites, while relations, distant relations of Israel, they were idolatrous nations too, so there's, it would seem that there's another matter of idolatry going on here, like in the other cases.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think you can also look at the fact that um, you have uh, Ruth, who is a Moabite, mm. who ends up uh, being welcomed into the assembly. Um, and I think that's really important in this whole thing too, to understand the fact that Ruth leaves behind her nation and her gods. She becomes an Israelite, and I do think there's a difference here, too, even though it's not necessarily explicit in this text here. You have people that will come to be part of the nation of Israel who basically forsake their foreign land and their foreign gods. Mm. And again, that's where we get back to. This is really about idolatry, and I think you probably can read this whole thing that way. That the reason that the Moabites and the Ammonites, again, are being ultimately um, rejected for being part of the assembly of God here is that they're idolaters. Hmm. Uh, and, and they're not, um, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of uh, throwing this out here. They're probably not leaving their idolatry to join the assembly of Israel. Right. They probably just want to be part of the assembly of Israel and don't want to leave their foreign gods. But you can contrast that with somebody like Ruth, who very explicitly, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Ruth, who very explicitly rejects uh, the gods of the Moabites uh, to enter into the assembly of Israel.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's right. She she tells her mother-in-law Naomi. It's it's a very famous passage there in the first chapter that that where she says to to Naomi, "Where you go, I go, and and your gods will be my god or uh, your god." I think she doesn't say a plural. I'm not quoting it perfectly. It's in Ruth chapter one. It's a very famous passage, and I I, <clears throat> I do right. think you're right. <laughs> that that i mean keeping that in mind is helpful and ruth as we know she ends up in the line of christ and so i mean what a what a fantastic testament to the fact that again this isn't about god somehow excluding people who are of different nations but rather about protecting the worship of of him and him alone, the first commandment is at stake here. Now, in in verses seven and eight, we do also have something about the assembly, but here it's it's quite the quite the opposite. Don't abhor either an Edomite or an Egyptian, and there's a, a provision for them to be included in the assembly of the Lord in the third generation. What's what's happening in verses seven and eight?
1: Yeah, the Edomites and the Egyptians are given kind of like a, a special exemption here from the permanent prohibition from the assembly and. Uh, the Edomites are descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. So there's an even closer, uh, a really close familial relationship there. these are these are like distant cousins of the uh, the Israelites at this point. Um, and while they are not um, necessarily people who believed in the true God, they were close relatives. And so the Lord indicates that they should not be hated here. Um, And he only gives this uh, this kind of temporary prohibition of them being in the assembly after the third generation. They can uh, remain in now or or be welcomed in. Um, And then uh, the Egyptians are, you know, we we tend to think of the Egyptians and their relationship to Israel being not good. uh, And that's because it did end rather badly with Pharaoh not allowing the Israelites to go. And then finally, Uh, the Lord bringing the plagues upon the Israelites uh, to the point that it it finally culminates in the Passover. Uh, And then, you know, Pharaoh and his host being drowned in the Red Sea uh, and all of that. But uh, the fact is that uh, in the beginning, or at least when the relationship between Israel and Egypt started, it was a very positive relationship. Um, Joseph is down there. He brings uh, his family uh, down there to live in Egypt, and it becomes a place where they're uh, basically preserved because had they remained in Israel, they would have faced uh, very severe famine, um, and so Egypt served as a place where the people could safely live for a long time. Hmm. Um, and so there is that uh, soft spot, I suppose, in in God's heart, and in and in turn in the people's heart for Egypt because of that. Or he urges them to be. Uh, kind of the Egyptians. Hmm. On top of that, there is the fact that there is some Egyptian blood among some of the Israelites. Ephra, Ephraim and Manasseh were um, half-Egyptian by their mother, Joseph's wife, hmm. uh, and so uh, there's there's a little bit of a family connection there as well. Uh, and so again, these two groups, the Egyptians and the Edomites, are welcomed into the assembly after the after a time after the third generation
0: it says hmm. well you know and you mentioned the connection to Egypt with with Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh his children and the fact that it's the third assembly or the third generation that gets to enter you know you think about what happened in the Exodus there were Egyptians who I think went with Israel there's that mixed multitude in Exodus 12 that does leave Egypt along with the Israelites and so the third generation would be coming up pretty quick here just in terms of the timeline so i you know and we know that those egyptians they could adjoin themselves to the people of israel and actually again as you pointed out earlier become faithful israelites worshiping the lord worshiping yahweh alone you see that concern here so we're gonna take our break right there you're listening to sharper iron on kfuo we're talking about deuteronomy 23 this morning with pastor david vandercook we'll be right back please stick around Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 13th. We're studying Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 to 25 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vanderkirk. prior to the break, we were speaking about the first eight verses about who can and can't be a part of the assembly of the Lord. And over and over again, we saw how it really is more of a matter of religion. Do you trust in the Lord or an idol as it goes through? Beginning in verse nine, we're still talking about among the people of Israel, but the focus shifts a little bit, and it seems to be much more a military context about how you act within the camp, particularly in the army. So take us into to this section, starting in verse 9.
1: Yeah, we first, uh, you know, just verse 9, when you're encamped against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. Throughout this whole thing, we remember that whenever the Israelites win a battle, it's not because of their might and their ability at fighting that they win the battle. They win the battle because the Lord fights with them and really fights for them. And so that means the Lord is present with them uh, when they are in battle. And so because the Lord is present, that changes very much the way that they are going to approach living in general. Um, So, you know, he gives these laws about basically keeping the soldiers, keeping themselves, um, Pure, but also keeping their camp clean there are certain things that should not happen in the camp uh there are certain uh certain there's certain amount of filth that shouldn't be there in the camp and there is i suppose uh a a little bit of hygiene that's simply being taught here Um, but more than that it's a matter of you know if you have if you're in the presence of god uh, you want to present yourself as clean Uh, Because, you know, it's just like when you're in the presence of of royalty or something like that, Uh, you're not going to you're not going to present yourself as somebody who is dirty. Uh, You're going to clean yourself up. And so uh, that's that's kind of the message here. You know, keep yourself pure when you are in the camp because the Lord is with you in this camp. So
0: the overarching concern then is that, and it's spoken there in verse 14, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. This is the the overarching reality that that governs what's going on. And particularly in the the context of an army, I, I suppose when it is a lot of a lot of men who are soldiers together, there is the the possibility for some rather uncouth behavior among them. I don't know if that's the right word to, <laughs> to use but but recognizing right. who the the general is and who's actually doing the fighting and that it's it's not about their military might. It's not about these you know big soldiers showing off their might. This is actually about following the Lord doing what he has said and letting him fight the battle and win the battle, and then you go and take the land, that does change the whole mindset of what it means to be a part of that. And so we have these, these matters of uncleanness that are particularly brought up a, a nocturnal emission. And then also, you know, what do you do with your excrement and how do you, how do you deal with that? As you said, there's, there is some hygiene matters probably, but even more than that, the theological reality of God's here. So, Act like it. Let your let your lifestyle right. show that.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it starts off with this uh, with the the nocturnal emissions, and uh, you know the fact is the soldiers refrain from sex when they are away at war, and that's obviously primarily because their wife is not there with them. Mm. Um, we're not. We're obviously still in the area uh, in the era whenever um, women did not go to battle. Um, it's, it's only the males they are of course going to battle. And so their wives are back home. Uh, and in fact, you know, it, it made me think about, um, uh, Uriah, whenever David tries to get Uriah to, uh, uh, to sleep with his wife Bathsheba in order to cover up his adultery and he refuses to do it. Uh, well, first of all, he, you know, he, David gets, he refused to do it even after David gets him drunk, he still doesn't do it. Uh, and, the reason that he gives for not doing it because David asked him, why didn't you go down to your wife? And he said, well, it's not right for me to do that uh, because we're at war right now. And that's just not something they did. And and so then there's the biological reality of uh, the possibility of nocturnal emissions as, as just a, a way that the, the male uh, human body has of uh, expelling, um, uh, expelling, expelling, uh, uh, excessive semen from the body and that could happen at night and so the idea is that if you're going to be if that happens then you become unclean and you need to clean yourself up Uh, but notice it's not that long Uh, it's uh, it's obviously uh, just you know 24 hours or so that's given Uh, they're supposed to purify themselves in the evening and then return when the sun has gone down Uh, but but again the issue here is that we want to keep the camp clean And we need the men to be uh, presentable before the Lord.
0: Hmm, right. Yeah, and it, and we should it's probably worth pointing out that because just because something is labeled as unclean that is not saying that it is sinful in this case. It is this is simply something that it it's not appropriate in that near of a presence of the Lord. The the concept of uncleanness particularly in the book of Leviticus is often associated with how close can you be to the Lord and his holiness? And when you are unclean you can't be close to him. So it's not a matter of necessarily sin, and I think particularly in this case it's not a matter of of sin but it's rather about you know being presented before the Lord, and there are certain things, as you said, when the king is in the camp, you don't behave in certain ways, you don't do certain things, and this is a part of that. And similarly then with with excrement and, and burying it outside the camp, it it was quite striking when you think about what does a soldier need to go to war? Well, one of the tools is a, a trowel, given to the, uh, that's what the yeah. Lord says here. You, know, you don't only have a sword, you've got a trowel so you can go outside the camp and you can cover up your excrement. And again, you know, because the Lord's there, and also probably there's a concern for Your fellow soldiers, I mean, that seems to be pretty good for the morale, what's given there, in addition to the theological reasons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you want to have consideration for the neighbor here. So there's there's a love of God and love for the neighbor here, both working at the same time. And, um, you know, yeah, it's one of those realities that, you know, not everybody probably thinks about when they think about uh, soldiers at war. It's not like they just have restrooms all over the place that that's they right. can just uh, stop by at. You know, especially not in this era, of course. But, um, uh, but, but even today, uh, that's a reality, I suppose, that would still have to be dealt with. So yeah.
0: uh, that's right. I mean, and you know, it, it seems maybe strange to us, but it is the Lord being quite practical in in many respects. In addition to the very important reason that the Lord is among them, as I said from the outset. In verses 15 and 16, Moses changes topics. We're talking now about what happens if a a slave runs away and he escapes to you. Uh, What does Moses say for that situation? What's the rationale?
1: Yeah, escaped slaves were not returned to their masters, and they're allowed to to dwell among the Israelites. Now, it, it, it implies here that we're talking about slaves from foreign nations, uh, because the fact is that Israelite slaves were freed every six years anyway. We find that in Deuteronomy 15. Um, and it's it's not explicitly mentioned here, but there is a parallel to the fact that you have the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, and uh, they were not returned to their owners by the nations that opposed them in their wilderness wanderings. They remained free. Uh, and so there is this, uh, uh, this, uh, this precedent, I suppose, that is set that the people are to remember their own history and how they treat these slaves from foreign lands. There's no extradition, uh, in other words, for, um, uh, for these, these slaves. You know, there's, there's not that type of agreement between Israel and its neighbors. Um, and, you know, I think you can draw in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, you know, as, as, as an applicable passage for this as well. That the uh, the servant is uh, forgiven of his sin, and therefore that same forgiveness ought to be extended to his fellow servant. Uh, and so, in this case, hey, Israelites, you were freed from your slavery; um, you should extend that same courtesy to slaves who escape from other nations.
0: Hmm. So in verses seventeen and eighteen, we come then again to a pretty, I think, clear connection to the matter of idolatry and wrong worship, particularly in the matter of cult prostitution. Uh, maybe just a, a bit of background: what's what's the background here, and what's the Lord forbidding?
1: Yeah, these are really common among the pagan nations that surround Israel. Very common among the the Canaanites that cult prostitutes were used in their um, fertility rites. Um, You know, I I don't know that at least I'm not totally familiar with what all that entails. But I mean, people could use their imaginations, I suppose. Um, But uh, it's 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 not holy. Uh, And it it again gets back to the forbidden unions uh, that we talked about earlier and the various um, laws of sexual purity that God gave to his people back in uh, chapter 22. Um, and, and in other parts of the Torah, for that matter, too. Um, but, but here, uh, his people were not to be a part of that practice. And again, it's because, well, I mean, first of all, it's forbidden sexual unions. But on top of that, it's also in service to an idol uh, that quite often these things are done. Uh, and they're not to be, the Israelites are not to take part in that by any means. And so they are, uh, that, that's forbidden from them.
0: In verse eighteen, the way that the ESV translates it seems a little unusual. It says, "You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute that makes sense, or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord." What's what is what is the dog referred to here? And then what is it? What what are what's not to be done here with the money?
1: Yeah, if anybody's got an English Standard Version, you'll see a um, there's a footnote down there, and it says, um, "or male prostitute" in place of dog. Uh, and that is likely what they what's being referred to here by Moses is uh, is a male prostitute. you know the the initial part is is speaking of uh, female prostitutes because it says in seventeen, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. So probably the wages of a dog here is referring to the money that was paid for a male prostitute, or that was dedicated to that. Uh, And so this money, then, that's connected with fertility rituals is not to be used in a vow to God. Uh, You know, in other words, money that's been defiled, you can't just simply uh, kind of wash your hands of it and clean it up that way. And I do think that uh, looking at uh, Judas and what he does with the 30 pieces of silver that were given to him to betray Jesus, he goes back and he tries basically to um, clean up his act, uh, clean up his actions by taking the money back and saying, uh, look, I did a wrong, I did something terrible. Here's the money. I'm giving it back to you. Uh, and you note that, um, they don't, they don't take it back and just put it in the treasury, um, because it's blood money. And so they use it to buy, uh, the potter's field, the the field that's used to bury foreigners in, you know, uh, so they use it for a, a less holy purpose than it would have been if it was just in the treasury. And so the same thing is kind of going on here that this money that's connected with fertility rituals—you can't just turn around and say, uh, you know, well, I, I, you know, I did something terrible, so now let's use this money for this good thing. Yeah. It's it's dirty money, uh, and it and it can't be used for that purpose.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think the connection to what happens with Judas and the New Testament is is helpful. In verse 19, again, we're we're dealing with money still, but now it's more about interest. And you can charge interest on foreigners or to foreigners, but not to your brother. Uh, Take us into this section.
1: Yeah, well, I think the Seventh Commandment is really helpful here to to understand uh, how this works a little bit. Um, The Seventh Commandment teaches us that the reason that God gives us things, that he gives us money, that he gives us possession— is for the sake of our neighbor. It's to help them protect their possessions and income. And the charging of interest to our neighbor, and here I would apply neighbor to mean explicitly our, our neighbor, and in this case with the Israelites, my fellow Israelite, uh, my goal is to help them improve and protect their possessions and income. And I'm not doing that if I'm charging them interest. I'm actually kind of robbing them uh now he does add Moses does add the Lord does add that it was permissible for um, for loans made to those outside of Israel to be charged interest um, but not for your fellow Israelite uh, because they are um, they're your neighbor and it's kind of one of those things where you're living in this community with these people uh, and so you do treat the people that are part of your church, Differently than you teach, than you treat the people that are not part of your church.
0: Hmm. Well, I think I mean First John deals with that, especially where where he talks about you know loving the love of God. Then influencing the love of neighbor. And particularly he he speaks of the brothers and sisters within the church. First John, I think that that the apostle there applies that very explicitly. And I, I like the connection you make here to the seventh commandment. I'm not I, I remember this happening probably while I was a pastor when it, it kind of dawned on me that the explanation given to the seventh commandment, that the opposite of stealing isn't just keeping my hands off of my neighbor's possessions. Uh, certainly there's that. But just that that phrase that Luther invites us to to use that we would help our neighbor to improve and protect our neighbor's possession and income. That part of the at least part of the opposite of stealing is actually a generosity toward the neighbor. That it's not just about, I'm going to keep my hands off your stuff, stuff and help you to keep it, but I'm actually going to help you Improve it that that what you have becomes more that you grow and benefit, and yeah, that the charging of interest doesn't really doesn't really do that, and and that's I mean I, that's you know a very common thing, and yet Moses has something to say about it here.
1: Right? Yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah, he does, and, and again, uh, it does give us something to to ponder whenever we we think about uh, how we deal with those who are nearest to us. Do we? Um, uh, you know, because it has become regular business practice to charge interest on a loan, uh, even sometimes personal loans that people make. You know, I, I don't mean like formal um, agreements through a bank or something like that, but just right. you know, if if I lend, um, if I lend somebody in my family, you know, a couple hundred dollars, uh, you know, am I am I going to expect them to pay me interest back in addition to that? that couple hundred dollars that I lent them at a time of need. Uh, and a passage like this would give me some serious second, second thoughts about doing that. Yeah. Uh, because you know, it, it teaches me maybe that's not the best practice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, it is a matter of me making a sacrifice here because, um, uh, the fact is that $200 is worth more than $200 in a couple of years. Uh, but at the same time we are called to sacrifice for our neighbor who is in need. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's that's well said, Pastor Vandercook. In verse twenty-one and following, Moses switches topics now to making vows before the Lord and doing it quickly, and maybe even considering not vowing at all. Uh, what is Moses saying about vows?
1: Yeah, well, if you make a vow, you got to keep the vow. That's kind of the first first thing he says. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna make a vow, you vow especially if you're gonna make a vow to the Lord, then you got to fulfill it. That's kind of the bottom line. Uh, and, in fact, uh, Jesus says the same thing in, in Matthew chapter 5. You make a vow, you have to keep that vow. Uh, but there's also this whole thing, and that and that should give us some pause there. First of all, don't make a vow hastily. And it might even be better not to make a vow at all. And in fact, that's Jesus' advice in Matthew 5, is that it'd be better if you just didn't make a vow. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no uh, and, and go on with it. Um, and the problem here with making vows is that you bring the second commandment into play and that, you know, it profanes the name of God if you say that you are going to do something and swear by God's name that you're going to do it, and then you don't do it, uh, because then you've dragged the Lord's name into your mess along with you and your failure to keep it. Uh, And so it'd be probably better if we avoid making vows whenever possible uh, so that we are not, um, you know, there may very well be a time whenever we promise somebody that we're going to do it, but we end up not being able to do it for one reason or another. Um, But if we swear to do something, that's a step further and and brings God into the picture and and, uh, makes him look bad if we don't do it. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, be careful about Making vows, finally, then Moses comes to in verse 24 and 25 something that seems very simple and yet is, is pretty important. What do you do if you're in your neighbor's vineyard and he's got a lot of grapes? How many can you eat uh, what what's going on with this <laughs> again, maybe it seems i don't I don't have a, a neighbor who has a vineyard or a, a field with grain that I could do these things so maybe maybe that's part of the, the it's like this is but this is reality for for the people of Israel very important instructions. what does Moses say what's it coming from?
1: Yeah, well, we do have gardens today, though, you know. That's if true, that's I'm, if true. I'm walking through, if I'm walking through uh, Smithville, Texas someday, <laughs> and I come by your garden, you know, and I'm hungry, <laughs> that's right. I might have to grab me a, grab myself a snack, you know. Okay, you but, can have uh, a tomato uh, <laughs> or two.
0: Yeah, go for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go, thanks. Um, so, you know, the idea here, again, and this is, this is a, a uh, kind of a fifth commandment thing, you know, again, we're called to care for the needs of our neighbor's body. Uh, And so if we have somebody that's traveling through, uh, you know, or if the Israelites have somebody that's traveling through and they're hungry and they've got a vineyard or, you know, it says a vineyard or a field here, I'm sure it applies to a lot of other things as well, but, you know, and they're hungry, then by all means you should feed them, uh, you know. But at the same time, there's also a message here for the one who who is the hungry one, and that's, don't get greedy. You know, um, this is, this is not supposed to be, this is not your license to take as much as you want, uh, and either then turn around and sell it for your own gain or, uh, you know, basically harvest it as if it's your own field and things like that. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's, it's just this whole idea of taking what you need, uh, but don't be greedy.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, which I think, and I, I didn't, I didn't think of this before, but it is the way that the Lord provides for the Israelites in the wilderness, too, Hmm. in that whenever the manna appears on the ground in the morning, um, they are only to collect what they need for that day uh, and uh, trust that the Lord will provide enough for that day, and that he's going to provide it again the next day. Uh, And as as the Israelites picked up, uh, you know, at first you have this... um, Uh, you have them storing up more basically because they don't trust that it's going to happen the next day, and it breeds worms and stinks, you know. Um, But for a positive example of this, you also have uh, Jesus and his disciples showing how the law was applied. Mm -hmm. Uh, They pluck grains to eat on the Sabbath day in Matthew chapter 12. Um, Again, not harvesting the field, but they're hungry, uh, they're walking through, and that's something that is completely permissible. Uh, And, in fact, encouraged by God's law here is is care for the needs of the body. Hmm. Uh, And so for the one who has the field, it's really a fifth commandment thing, uh, providing for your neighbor who's in need. And for those who are traveling through, it's kind of a seventh commandment thing. Don't take more than you need. Um, This is your neighbor's possessions, um, but they are providing it to you. Uh, Don't waste it. Don't hoard it. Don't be greedy.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, and I, as you were talking there and connecting those things in this this particular command, I think that that ties back up to what we were saying about interest earlier. That for the one who's doing the lending, you know, don't take advantage of your neighbor by by charging him interest. You know, you have, take the opportunity to sacrifice. Having this part right here in the context, I think invites for further reflection on the one who receives the loan the brother Israel who receives the loan you know don't take advantage of your your neighbor who's giving to you don't say oh well he's not going to charge me interest so I'm going to ask for a thousand dollars instead of just the 200 I need there that there you put right. the Lord puts the the check on the sinful nature on both sides both for the one doing the lending or, or who has the field and then also for the one' who's, who's receiving the loan or who's doing the gleaning in both cases it's there's there's a trust that the Lord's going to provide what you need, whether you're the one lending or receiving, giving or receiving, the Lord's going to be the one providing, and the Lord would, would prevent our sinful natures from running amok on, on both sides of that, that transaction. So again, a very practical application here from the Lord of the law, as Moses gives it. I have about a minute and a half here, Pastor Vandercook. Help us to, to wrap things up on this text. How does a text with such variety like this point us to Christ?
1: Well, yeah, there is a lot of variety here, um, and I think it points us to Christ in a couple of ways. You know, first of all, as we've mentioned already, all of this law is uh, fulfilled in Christ Jesus, but uh, Christ also echoes a lot of these types of things. You know, I mentioned uh, Matthew chapter 5, where uh, Jesus does go into the law here, and uh, law, he goes into the law there in his Sermon on the Mount, um, but he also expands some of the meanings of these laws, and ultimately gets to the spiritual matter here of this is ultimately about how we love God and how we love our neighbor. Uh, and of course, we see the ultimate fulfillment of love for God and love for the neighbor in Christ. Um, this coming Sunday is the uh, for for the historic lectionary is um, uh, the parable of the. Uh, uh, Parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and we see in Jesus our Good Samaritan. He is the one who uh, keeps this law perfectly. And he also uh, says to us, Go and do likewise. Uh, you have been uh, redeemed. You have been forgiven. Um, now let's live like that. Uh, let's, let's reflect the love that God has for us in the way that we treat our neighbor. Mm-hmm.
0: Pastor David Vandercook is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas, helping us today with Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Glad to be here.
0: I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, please send us an email KFUO at KFUO.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.